Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, listeners to the history of ancient Greece can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at www.audible.com forward slash ancient Greece. Once again, that is www.audible.com forward slash ancient Greece. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 51, Sophocles. The second great Athenian playwright whose works have survived is Sophocles. He was born a few years just before the Battle of Marathon, most likely in 497 BC, in the rural Athenian deme of Colonus, which would become a setting for one of his later plays. Over time, his father became the primary manufacturer of armor for Athenian hoplites, and thus he was able to achieve great wealth. As a result of his wealthy upbringing, Sophocles' character was both measured and conservative, but his family's wealth and position also afforded him the opportunity as a youth to become highly educated in the works of the traditional epic and lyric poets. From an early age, he also showed exceptional ability in musical and gymnastic contests, and he was admired for his athletic prowess and good looks. In 479 BC, at 18 years old, Sophocles was chosen to lead the Paeon, a choral chant to a god. This one in particular celebrated the Greek victory over the Persians at the Battle of Salamis. His musical ability was so advanced that he would go on to compose the music for the chorus of his own tragedies. Early in his career, too, Sophocles even acted in his own plays, but due to having a weak voice, he eventually settled into the role of being a writer only. Most modern scholars believe that he presented his first play sometime in the late 470s BC, but his no doubt first triumph came in 468 BC, when he took first prize in the city Dionysia. Plutarch, in his Life of Cimon, recounts this event, in which the young and talented Sophocles triumphed over Aeschylus, who had been winning competitions unchallenged since the death of Phrynichus. According to Plutarch, the victory came under unusual circumstances, though. Instead of following the usual custom of choosing judges by lot, the eponymous archon asked Cimon and the other strategoi present to judge the victor of the contest. Plutarch further contends that following this loss, Aeschylus soon voluntarily left for Sicily. The lost work, titled Triptolemus, might have been one of the plays that Sophocles presented at this festival. Sophocles was sociable and garrulous, and he maintained good relations with all of the intellectual and political personalities of his time. In fact, in the early part of his career, the conservative politician Cimon may have been one of Sophocles' patrons, although, if he was, there would be no ill will borne by Cimon's rival, the more radical Pericles, after Cimon was ostracized in 461 BC. Following the death of Aeschylus in 456 BC, 
For almost 50 years, Sophocles became the most preeminent playwright in Athens. In total, he competed in over 30 Dionysia competitions, won at least 18, and was never judged lower than second place. In contrast, Aeschylus had only won 14, and Euripides, a younger contemporary of Sophocles, who we will discuss in the next two episodes, only won five competitions. Sophocles, therefore, at least in terms of victories, was the most successful of the three great tragedians. It is estimated that in the course of his lifetime, he wrote upward of around 120 total tragedy and satyr plays, plus numerous elegies and paeons and an ode to the historian Herodotus. But of these works, only seven tragedies and one half of a satyr play have survived. However, unlike for Aeschylus, for the works that we do have of Sophocles, we have very insecure dating. Although Sophocles followed in the footsteps of Aeschylus, he introduced many innovations of his own that would provide the foundations for all future Western dramatic performances. He abandoned Aeschylus's hallmark system of a trilogy of plays sharing a common theme. He introduced a third actor on stage at one time, something which Aeschylus himself adopted as well later in life. This allowed for more sophisticated plots and dialogue. Aristotle also credits him with the introduction of scenographia, or scenery painting. For example, he might have painted the backdrop to suggest a rural setting, and in the middle of the play, he may even have changed this scenery to something else, such as an urban center or a temple. Sophocles also increased the total number of chorus members from 12 to 15, and compared to Aeschylus, the chorus in Sophocles' plays became far less important in explaining the plot, but instead became more of a participatory cast member, as both a protagonist and a commentator on the events of the play, thus creating a more intimate relationship with the audience. In addition to innovations in dramatic structure, Sophocles also had a greater emphasis on character development and conflict. In particular, he was a big fan of using theatrical metaphor, and his work in general sought to make the audience uncomfortable about their acceptance of what was considered normal, by forcing them through the play's characters to make difficult or sometimes even impossible choices. These choices lead to consequences that overwhelm the lives of the heroes, and in many cases are in no way explained or justified. And in this, we see the beginning of the sort of painful reflection on the human condition that was current in the contemporary world. Other ways in which Sophocles conveyed meaning and emphasis were dramatic entrances and exits of actors and the repeated use of significant props. Finally, Sophocles used rich, highly formalized language, but at the same time, flexibility was added by including segments of more natural speech, and the use of pauses resulted in him achieving a greater rhythm, fluidity, and dramatic tension than his contemporaries. The father of history, Herodotus of Halicarnassus, also was a contemporary of Sophocles, and he happened to be in Athens during the 440s BC. Herodotus also employed a deeper dive towards character development, as we have mentioned many times before, and so it may just be a coincidence, but these two poets no doubt crossed paths and might have had literary influences on one another. Regardless, the great historian continued on with his travels before ultimately moving to Thurii in southern Italy in 445-444 BC, where he probably finalized his histories. In 443-442 BC, Sophocles served as one of the Hellenotomii, or treasurers of Athena, who managed the finances of the city and the empire during the political ascendancy of Pericles, which shows that by this point, he came into the good graces of Athens' foremost politician. Finally, in 441 BC, Sophocles was elected as one of the ten strategoi and served in the Athenian campaign against Samos. 
There will be much more on all of this in a future episode. But he was supposedly elected to this position as a result of his popularity achieved due to his play, Antigone. The year of production is unknown, but it had to have been put on in either 442 or 441 BC, making it the oldest of his three surviving dramas about the unfortunate house of Oedipus, the legendary ruler of Thebes who was fated to kill his father and marry his mother. These three plays concern the fate of Thebes during and after the reign of King Oedipus. Although they are often lumped together, they were each written and displayed at three separate festival competitions, many years apart. Not only are they not a true trilogy, meaning that they weren't performed together in one day, but they are not even an intentional series, as they contain some inconsistencies among them. Sophocles also wrote other plays having to do with Thebes that have not survived, while others only survive in very few fragments, such as the Epigoni, which recounts the story of the second siege of Thebes by the sons of those seven Argive leaders who participated in the seven against Thebes. Sequentially, though, Antigone is the third of these three surviving Theban plays, though as we have alluded to before, it was the first written. In them, Sophocles echoes Herodotus' warnings about the vicissitudes of fortune and the impossibility of judging a man's life until it is complete. He presents the seemingly good fortune of Oedipus, the highly intelligent and respected ruler of Thebes in the heroic age, only to show us his life, disintegrating before our eyes. Like Aeschylus and the other tragic poets, Sophocles reworked the familiar plots of Greek mythology with their emphasis on agonizing family discord to express his view of the world. In particular, Antigone expands on the Theban legend that predated it and picks up where Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes ends, as we mentioned last episode. In Antigone, Sophocles asks us to contemplate a deep and difficult question of political and ethical science. That is, what is the relationship of the individual citizen to the state? What should a citizen do if his duty of obedience to the government of his polis conflicts with his personal and moral duties? Are there any obligations higher than that of loyalty to the laws of the polis? He asks these questions through the painful tensions that arise in Oedipus's family after his death. Both of his sons, Polynesus and Eteocles, had died fighting in a civil war to gain control of the throne of Thebes. Their uncle Creon, who was the brother-in-law of Oedipus, became the new king of Thebes and has decided that Eteocles will be honored, but Polynesus, who instigated the war by taking up arms against his brother and the city, will not be honored and instead declared a traitor. As such, his body will not be sanctified by holy rites, and thus will lie unburied on the battlefield, and ultimately would become prey for wandering animals. Leaving a body unburied was considered one of the harshest punishments at that time and was typically reserved for non-citizen enemies of the state. Anyone who wished to defy Creon's edict almost certainly faced execution. Naturally, though, Polynices' sister, Antigone, wished to fulfill her religious and familial obligations by burying her brother's body. Thus, like many characters in Greek tragedy, Antigone now finds herself confronted with a painful choice. She must decide whether to honor her obligation to her brother and to the gods, which means facing death herself, or to obey the laws of the state, and thus keeping herself safe. Sophocles here forces the audience to ponder whether an individual has the right to reject society's infringement on their freedom when performing a personal obligation. The contrasting views of Creon and Antigone, with regards to laws higher than those of the state, inform their different conclusions about civil disobedience. Creon demands obedience to the law, above all else, right or wrong. He is a rigid and insensitive authoritarian. He says that there is nothing worse than disobedience to authority. 
Antigone is headstrong and defiant and responds with the idea that state law is not absolute and it can be broken in extreme cases, such as honoring the gods, whose rule and authority outweigh that of Creon. In fact, she repeatedly declares that she must act to please those that are dead because they hold more weight than any ruler. Furthermore, in the opening scene, she makes an emotional appeal to her sister Ismene, saying that they must protect their brother out of sisterly love, even if he did betray their state. And so Antigone's determination to bury Polynices arises from a desire both to not dishonor her family and to honor the higher law of the gods. When Antigone buries her brother's body, Creon becomes enraged and sentences her to death even against the pleas of the Theban elders, who act as the chorus, and his own son Haman, who was betrothed to Antigone. The blind seer Tiresias also warns Creon that if he proceeds with this course of action, the gods will punish him. Eventually, Creon relents and is convinced to free Antigone from her punishment, but his decision comes too late, as a messenger arrives with the news that Antigone has committed suicide by hanging herself. Her suicide triggers the suicide of two others close to Creon. His son Haman stabbed himself when he saw the dead body of his betrothed, and his wife, the Queen Eurydice, hung herself after learning about the death of her only son. With her last breath, she curses her husband's arrogance. Creon blames himself for everything that has happened, and as a broken man, he asks his servants to help him inside. The order he valued so much has been protected, and he is still the king, but he has acted against the gods and lost his son and his wife as a result. After Creon condemns himself, the leader of the chorus closes the play by saying that although the gods punish the proud, punishment brings wisdom. Although Sophocles is a conventional Athenian in his respect for the gods and their power to guide human life, in other regards in his plays, we can see him challenging conventional customs. For example, Antigone's situation parallels that of an epicleros, or a woman in ancient Athenian society, without a surviving father or any brothers. And here we see that Sophocles' sympathies lie with a fatherless, brotherless girl who experiences all of the helplessness that fell upon Athenian women, lacking male protectors. Sophocles, in fact, often sympathized with the plight of Greek women in his plays. In addition, Creon makes a good case for the importance of a rule of law that makes no exceptions for family members, and as someone living and actively participating in democratic Athens, Sophocles certainly saw the need to uphold the rule of law. But he makes the audience ask, is the decree of an autocrat really law, especially when the people are on Antigone's side? In this play, Sophocles deliberately exposes the right and wrong on each side of the conflict. Although Creon eventually acknowledges a leader's responsibility to listen to his people, the play offers no easy resolution for the competing interests of divinely sanctioned moral tradition, in this case being expressed by a woman, and the political rules of the state, which were being enforced by a man. Sophocles fully recognizes the complexity of the torturous choices that Antigone and Creon must make, and uses this internal and external confrontation as proof for the wondrous complexity of humankind and the communities humans have struggled to develop. Besides its importance in the history of drama, Sophocles' Antigone has a high significance in the development of Western thought, as it's the first presentation on stage of a problem, that being the rights of the individual versus the rule of law in a state, which touches the very roots of ethical theory and is still constantly debated today. 
Antigone was written at a time of national fervor for Athens, and it is striking that a prominent play in a time of such imperialism contains very little political propaganda. And with the exception of the Epiclerate, as we mentioned before, and arguments against anarchy, the play makes no contemporary allusion or passing reference to Athens. Rather than becoming sidetracked with the issues of the time, Antigone remains focused on the characters and themes within the play. It does, however, expose the dangers of the absolute ruler, or tyrant, in the person of Creon, a king to whom few will speak freely and openly their true opinions, and who therefore makes the grievous error of condemning Antigone, an act which he pitifully regrets in the play's final lines. Athenians, proud of their democratic tradition, would have identified his error and the folly of tyranny in the many lines of dialogue which emphasize that the people of Thebes believe he is wrong but have no voice to tell him so. Sophocles's Ajax may have been produced at the same Dionysia that Antigone was first performed, in either 442 or 441 BC, although it's not for certain. Regardless, it is one of Sophocles' oldest surviving plays. In this play, he depicts the tragic fate of the proud warrior Ajax, who is driven to treachery and eventually suicide during the Trojan War, well after the events of the Iliad. According to custom, following the death of a great warrior, his armor was to be gifted to the man who is considered to be the most worthy. Well, at this time, Ajax is the second greatest warrior in the Greek army, behind only Achilles, and so following the death of Achilles, Ajax expects to receive his armor, as was custom. And so his pride takes a huge blow, and he becomes gravely upset when Achilles' armor is instead awarded by Agamemnon and Menelaus to the wily Odysseus. In his rage, Ajax decides to kill them, as well as everyone else in his path. But he is stopped from doing so by Athena, who instead guides his murderous spirit onto unsuspecting livestock. When Ajax finally comes to his senses, he is overwhelmed by shame, and so he decides to commit suicide. He does so by impaling himself with the sword that Hector had given him. Agamemnon, though, much like with Creon, forbids Ajax's brother, Teucris, from burying his dead brother's corpse because Ajax had technically committed treason by plotting to kill the Greek leaders. Despite their enmity towards him, though, Odysseus is able to persuade Agamemnon against this, and so he grants Ajax a proper burial and restores the dead hero's honor. In doing so, Odysseus argues that even one's enemies deserve respect in death, and the future security of the army and the obligations of friendship demand that they obey the divine injunction always to bury the dead, regardless of the person's conduct while living. A remarkable and contrasting sentiment, especially if Ajax indeed was performed at the same Dionysia as Antigone, where Creon refused the proper burial rites for Polynices that led to his family's ruin. Furthermore, in arguing in favor of burying Ajax, Odysseus treats the army as if it were a polis, and his use of persuasive speech corresponds to the way in which disputes in a polis were supposed to be resolved. So Sophocles here was exploring the ethical quandaries of human beings in conflict with one another in a polis-like community. Even though the plots of most tragedies were based on stories that harkened back to a time before the polis, the moral issues being illuminated in his plays pertain to the society and obligations of citizens in a polis. Arguably, the most famous of all surviving Greek tragedies is Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannos, or Oedipus the King, performed in either 431 or 429 BC, during the early years of the Peloponnesian War. However, Sophocles only took second place during that competition. 
The first place winner was Aeschylus's nephew, Philocles, though the subject nature of that play is unknown. Regardless, in his Poetics, Aristotle considered Oedipus Tyrannos as the highest achievement ever attained in tragedy, as it best matches what he believed how drama should be made. At the very least, this sentiment by Aristotle is a testament to the high esteem in which Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannos was held even in the ancient world. As we mentioned in episode 16, in antiquity, the term Tyrannos referred to an illegitimate ruler, but it did not necessarily have a negative connotation. There is much scholarly debate over why Sophocles chose to use the word in his title. As we will see in the play, though, Oedipus actually was a legitimate ruler, but that would only be known towards the end of the play. So maybe it's an ironic title. Regardless, many elements from the myth of Oedipus were taken from a long-standing legend known to the audience, and so they take place before the opening scene of the play some of which are brought about piecemeal during the course of the play through the gradual discovery of terrible facts about Oedipus that are not entirely his fault. Oedipus belongs to the house of Labdicus, who was a grandson of Cadmus. If you recall from episode 46, Cadmus was the founder of Thebes and the grandfather of Dionysus. Following the death of Pentheus, which will be discussed when we talk about Euripides' Bacchae, the elder Cadmus appointed his son, Polydorus, as the new king of Thebes. He had a son named Labdicus, who became the founder of the great Theban dynasty of the Labdicides. His son was Laius, the biological father of Oedipus. The story of Oedipus begins with two non-Labdicide brothers from Thebes, Amphion and Zethus, who took control of the throne while the rightful heir, Laius, was too young. After doing so, they sent the young Laius to Elis near Olympia, which at that time was ruled by Pelops, who had many sons of his own, three of which were Atreus, the eventual father of Agamemnon and Menelaus, Thyestes and Chrysippus. The two brothers, Amphion and Zethus, were responsible for building the walls of Thebes, but they both died relatively young. At that point, Laius was now old enough to rule, and so he prepared to go back to Thebes and claim his rightful place on the throne. But after all of those years living in the palace, Laius had fallen in love with Pelops' youngest son, Chrysippus. So as he was preparing to leave for Thebes, Laius kidnapped and raped the young boy. It does not specify how Chrysippus escaped back to Elis, but he did, where he would eventually be murdered by his jealous two other brothers, Atreus and Thyestes, as we also recounted in episode 46. Regardless, before this happened, an angered Pelops placed a curse upon Laius, and much like with Pelops at Olympia earlier in his life, and the subsequent disaster that would befall his house, this curse too would bring about disaster onto Laius, his descendants, and the city of Thebes in general. Well, with the death of Amphion and Zethus, and since he was no longer welcomed in Elis, Laius rode on to Thebes and seized the empty throne. He then married a noblewoman named Jocasta. The two had trouble conceiving, though, and since the production of heirs is critical for rulers in order to maintain their family line, Laius traveled to the oracle at Delphi to ask what he must do in order to produce children. The oracle answered that he will have a son, but he would be destined to kill his father and marry his mother. Laius naturally was concerned, but his reaction to the oracle is typical of those who received prophecies that they did not like. Laius decided that he could thwart the prophecy by simply abstaining from sex with Jocasta. Sure, he would never produce an heir, but at least he wouldn't have a son that would one day kill him either. But, as you might have guessed, 
One night, he became excessively drunk, and like most people, when they drink, he started thinking with another part of his anatomy, and not with his head. The result is that he had sex with his wife and impregnated her. They in fact had a son, but they were unwilling to get rid of him at first, because they were so happy to finally have a child. Eventually, however, the words of the oracle kept gnawing at them until finally, they decided to prevent it from coming to fruition. They ordered one of their servants to leave the baby on Mount Kitharone, where it would die of exposure. The servant was to bind the child's feet together and drive a stake through them in order to stop the infant baby from crawling away or to keep his spirit from coming back to haunt them after he died. So the servant did as he was told, and he left the crying child in the bushes to die. But the servant felt anguish for his actions, and so when he chanced upon a shepherd from Corinth, pasturing his flocks on the mountainside, he told him about the abandoned child and begged him to rescue the baby. The shepherd, as it turns out, worked for the king of Corinth, so he located the baby and took it back to his king, Polybus, and his queen Merope, who named the baby Oedipus, literally meaning swollen foot, a reference to the stake that was driven through his feet. Oedipus was then raised, thinking that he was the actual son of the king and queen of Corinth, and apparently he grew quite arrogant. And so one night, while at a banquet in his father's palace, one of the guests, who had become a bit too inebriated, began to taunt him, and told him that he was not the actual son of Polybus, and so he did not deserve to think so highly of himself. Oedipus, as you can expect, grew distraught upon hearing this and confronted his parents. Polybus and Merope tried to convince him that he was their child which was a lie created in order to console him, but it apparently wasn't a good enough of a lie, because Oedipus still held his doubts. Eventually, he decided to head to the oracle at Delphi to seek the truth for himself, despite his parents' objections. When he arrived at Delphi and asked his questions at the oracle, he received the puzzling answer that he is fated to kill his father and marry his mother. And so thinking that this meant Polybus and Merope, Oedipus vowed not to let this happen. He too, like his real father, thought that he could evade his fate. And so instead of traveling back home to Corinth, in the hope that no harm would ever come to those who he thought were his real parents, he set off for the city of Thebes, leaving Corinth behind forever. On the way, at a remote crossroads on the road to Thebes from Delphi, he chanced upon a quarrel with a stranger over whose chariot had the right-of-way, as both wished to pass at the same time. Since both were in chariots, they were obviously royalty, and so were a tad bit full of themselves. When Oedipus decided to turn first, the stranger grew angry, and with his scepter, meaning he was a king, he struck Oedipus on the head, a kind of early road rage, if you will. Unaware of each other's identities, though, Oedipus in turn threw the stranger down from his chariot to the ground, and killed him and all of his servants, except for one who managed to escape towards Thebes. Unbeknownst to Oedipus at that time, he had just murdered his true father, Laius, the king of Thebes, and thus he fulfilled the first part of the oracle's prophecy. When Oedipus finally arrived at Thebes, he found that the city, at that time, was being terrorized by a sphinx, a monster with the head of a human, the body of a lion, and the wings of a bird. Some traditions say that it was sent by Hera as part of the curse that Laius had placed upon him by Pelops. It's also not clear when and for how long the Sphinx had been terrorizing Thebes, but it definitely was there after the death of Laius. Regardless, the Sphinx sat outside the city and refused to let anyone pass unless they could answer its riddle correctly, and killed all of those who answered it incorrectly. Naturally, this kept many from attempting to leave and enter the city. Regardless, the Sphinx must have killed a lot of people because Creon, 
Jocasta's brother, and the man who acted as king after the death of Laius, decreed that he would marry his sister, the widowed queen, and give the throne to whoever could answer the riddle correctly, and thus free Thebes from the monster. The riddle was, quote, What is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three in the evening, and is strongest when walking on the least? End quote. Well, Oedipus, decked out with his traveling hat and carrying a walking stick, at least according to what's seen on vase images, began to contemplate the question, knowing full well that his life was in danger if he answered it incorrectly. Eventually, and we aren't sure exactly how long the Sphinx allowed him to think about it, he settled on the response of, quote, man, who crawls on all fours as an infant, walks upright in his prime, and needs a walking stick in old age, end quote. One tradition says that he had learned the answer beforehand in a dream sent from the gods. Regardless, upon hearing his response, the surprised Sphinx either jumped off the cliff that she had been sitting on to her death, or she was so startled that she let her guard down, and so Oedipus was able to stab her with a sword. By answering the riddle correctly, though, he saved Thebes and entered the city as a hero. The people rejoiced, and as a result, he was offered the throne and the hand of its recently widowed queen, Jocasta not knowing that she was his biological mother. They married, he became the newest king of Thebes, and the new royal couple went on to have four children. And with this, the prophecy was thus fulfilled. The servant that left Oedipus on the mountainside was the only one who knew the truth, and he asked to be transferred to the fields, in fear for his life. And so that's the backstory. Sophocles' play opens with Thebes, once again in distress, some years later. There is a terrible plague in which all of the cattle are dying, the crops are failing, and no children are being born. And so Oedipus sends his brother-in-law, slash uncle, Creon, to seek advice from the Oracle of Delphi, and he discovers that the trouble is being caused by the presence of religious pollution in the city. The murderer of Laius had never been punished, and it is angering the gods that he is still living inside Thebes, and he must be removed. Oedipus thus vows to find the murderer, and curses him for causing the plague. He decrees awful punishment unless he gives himself up, and to anyone who shelters him, completely unaware that the killer he is looking for and cursing is none other than himself. Oedipus then seeks the identity of the killer from the blind seer, Tiresias, and although Tiresias knows the answer, he refuses to tell him the name of the killer, and warns Oedipus to abandon his search because he won't like where the path leads. Oedipus, in response, verbally abuses him, even going so far as to mock the blind seer's lack of sight, to which Tiresias says, quote, So you mock my blindness. Let me tell you this, you, Oedipus, with your precious eyes, you're blind to the corruption of your life. End quote. Literal and metaphorical references to eyesight like this here appear throughout the play, as clear vision serves as a metaphor for insight and knowledge. The clear-eyed Oedipus, in fact, is blind to the truth about his origins and inadvertent crimes, while the seer Tiresias, on the other hand, although literally blind, sees the truth from the gods and relays what is revealed to him. Although Oedipus's future was prophesied by the gods, and even after being warned by Tiresias, he still cannot see the truth or reality before him, because his excessive pride has blinded his vision. And so it is deliberately ironic that the seer can see better than Oedipus, despite being blind. Oedipus did not know thyself, a common maxim that floated around the Greek world at that time, and was one of the many wise sayings written at the temple of Apollo at Delphi, 
which could be seen whenever a person visited the oracle. Oedipus himself was an exaggerated case of self-blindedness. Indeed, by bringing down curses on the murder of Laius, he brought down curses upon himself. The irony of the Sphinx's riddle was that Oedipus was able to answer correctly what he did not truly understand. The answer was of course man, as we mentioned, but the riddle was actually saying that man has limitations. No one should think of himself as a god, but should understand who he is in the face of the gods. No one is as big as they think they are. As the play proceeds, it becomes apparent to Oedipus, while relentlessly seeking out the facts by questioning everyone involved, that not only did he himself commit the murder of Laius in the violent encounter that he had on his way to Thebes many years before, but also that he is in reality the son of Laius and Jocasta. It was during his questioning of witnesses that all of the backstory is unveiled, and this part takes up a huge portion of the play. At one point, a messenger arrives from Corinth with news of the death of King Polybus. Upon hearing this, Oedipus feels that he has in fact killed his father, as was stated by the oracle, because Polybus was mourning for him. But then the messenger tells him the truth, that he is not the actual son of the king and queen of Corinth. In doing so, the messenger relays the tale of how he took a baby from a servant and gave it to his king and queen. Oedipus does not believe him at first, but then he finds the servant that was transferred to the fields, and the story is confirmed. At last, when Oedipus has no further doubt that he himself was to blame, and that the oracle has come to pass, he shouts, quote, Alas, alas, all is clear. O light of day, may this be the last time I see you. I who am shown to be the child of those whose child I should not be. Married to the woman I should not have married. Killer of the man I should not have killed. End quote. He then rushes into the palace, where he finds that his mother-wife, Jocasta, already realizing the truth, has hanged herself. Horrified at his patricide and incest, Oedipus seizes her brooches that held her dress together and uses them to gouge out his own eyes in despair, physically blinding himself. The play thus ends with Oedipus's life in ruins. To an empty stage, the chorus comments, quote, Alas, generations of mortals, I think your life is as nothing. What man earns more happiness than merely to seem so, and after seeming so, to fall? Seeing your example, unhappy Oedipus, and your fate, I consider no mortal happy. End quote. This, of course, is another common Greek maxim, found numerous times in Herodotus as well, that no mortal man should be considered fortunate until he is dead. This is because at any given moment, you could have a total turn of fortune, going from very happy to horrible. The tragic realization of Oedipus, after all, happens in a one-day span. Fate is a theme that often occurs in Greek writing, tragedies in particular, and the idea that attempting to avoid an oracle is the very thing which brings it about, is a common motif in many Greek myths. Given our modern conception of fate and fatalism, readers of the play have a tendency to view Oedipus as a mere puppet controlled by greater forces, a man crushed by the gods and fate for no good reason. This, however, is not an entirely accurate reading. While it is a mythological truism that oracles exist in order to be fulfilled, oracles do not cause the events that lead up to their outcome. Free will and predestination are by no means mutually exclusive, and such is the case with Oedipus. The oracle delivered to Oedipus what is often referred to as a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the prophecy itself sets in motion events that conclude with its own fulfillment. This, however, is not to say that Oedipus is a victim of fate and has no free will. 
The Oracle inspires a series of specific choices, freely made by Oedipus, which lead him to kill his father and marry his mother. Oedipus chooses not to return to Corinth after hearing the Oracle, just as he chooses to head towards Thebes, to kill Laius, and to marry and to take Jocasta, specifically as his bride. In response to the plague at Thebes, he chooses to send Creon to the Oracle for advice, and then to follow that advice by initiating the investigation into Laius' murder. None of these choices are predetermined, and so the moral here for the ancient Greeks is that maybe life is a mixture of predestination and personal accountability. Zeus might be in control of one's destiny or fortune, but we choose the path to make it happen ourselves. Mankind should not worry about what the gods have in store for them, but to worry about the choices that they can deal with themselves. And so Oedipus's focus was all wrong. He worries about how to get out of his destiny, rather than choosing the right thing to do at any given time. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks and other audio products to choose from. When you're done with this episode, go to www.audible.com forward slash ancient Greece. That again is www.audible.com forward slash ancient Greece. By going to that address, you will qualify for a free book download when you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership. There is no obligation to continue the service, and you can cancel any time and keep the free book download. You can also keep going with one of the monthly subscription options and get 30% off on all future audiobook purchases. Listeners can download their choices and access them on their iOS, Android, Amazon Fire, or Windows Phone devices, as well as through the Audible app. For today's episode, I'm going to recommend picking up the Oedipus Plays, an Audible original drama. Like what you heard on today's episode? Well, why don't you go back and listen to the complete plays? With the authoritative but modern translation by Ian Johnston, specially commissioned new music from the English composer Roger Marsh, and a cast of outstanding actors, including Jamie Glover, this audible original presentation of The Tragic House of Oedipus will be listened to not once but many times. There will be a link in the show notes so you know exactly which copy to listen to. But just remember to go to www.audible.com forward slash ancient Greece so they know who sent you. And now let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. The Iknutai, or Trackers, is a fragmentary satyr play by Sophocles, whose date of production is unknown. Three quotations in ancient authors were all that was known of this play until 1907, when the remains of a 2nd century AD papyrus roll were found in Egypt. With more than 400 lines surviving now, the Trackers is the second best preserved satyr play, after Euripides' Cyclops, the only full intact example of the genre. The plot of the play was derived from the myth found in the Homeric hymn to Hermes. A newborn Hermes has stolen Apollo's cattle, and so he sends a chorus of satyrs to retrieve the animals, promising them the dual rewards of freedom and gold if they are successful. The satyrs set out to find the cattle by tracking their footprints, hence the name of the play. When they approach the cave in which the baby Hermes is hiding, they hear him playing the turtle shell lyre, which he has just invented. Scared by the strange sound, the satyrs debate their next move. The nymph of the mountain in which Hermes is hiding, Kylene, explains to them the nature of the musical instrument. 
Outside the cave, the satyrs see some sewn-together cow hides, and thus are convinced that they have found the thief. Apollo arrives on the scene right as the papyrus breaks off. The date of the production of the Trachinii, or the women of Trachis, is highly controversial, ranging from anywhere in the 450s to the 420s BC. The play is named for the Trachinian women who make up the chorus, and it portrays Heracles' accidental death at the hands of his second wife, Dianera, who he married after he had completed his famous Twelve Labors. Some scholars argue that this play was performed in the late 420s BC because the events of the play seem to reflect events that occurred during the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans believed that their kings were descended from Heracles, and so in either 427 or 426 BC, when they founded a colony in the central Greek region of Trachis, they called it Heraclea. This colony alarmed Athens, who feared that it could be used to attack Euboea. And in the women of Trachis, Heracles is said to either be waging war or planning to do so against Euboea. And so the link to current events and to Sparta could account for why Heracles is portrayed so coldly in the play by Sophocles. Regardless, we will discuss this event in a future episode. For more in-depth backstory for Heracles, check out episode 47. But for the purposes of understanding Sophocles' play, the story of Heracles will begin while he was performing the last of his twelve labors, that being the abduction of Cerberus, the large three-headed watchdog of Hades. There, in the underworld, Heracles ran into the shade of Meleager. He was famed for being the host of the Caledonian boar hunt, which we discussed in episode 46. Anyways, Meleager told Heracles a sad story of how he left his sister, Dianera, unwedded in his father's house, and begged Heracles to take her as his bride when he completed his task. Heracles agreed, and so when he returned to the world above, Heracles kept his promise to Meleager and married his sister. The two of them had a son, named Helus. Sophocles' play, starts at some point much later, with Dianera growing more and more distraught over Heracles' neglect of her and their family, as he is constantly off on some adventure. When she learns that he has taken a young lover, named Iole, who he had captured after he had laid siege to a Euboean city, Dianera decides to use a love potion on Heracles in order to win back his affection. When she was younger, she had been abducted by the centaur Nessus, but Heracles came to her rescue and killed him with an arrow. As he died, he told her that his blood would keep Heracles from loving any other woman more than her. However, since Heracles had dipped his arrows with the poison of the Larnian Hydra to make them more deadly, Nessus's blood was now tainted with this poison, and he knew that. Well, years later, Dianera decided to use it. Tricked into thinking it is a love potion, she actually applies a poison to an article of Heracles' clothing. When he puts it on, it burns his skin like napalm, and nothing he does can counteract the fiery acid, as he begins to die an excruciating death. Upon learning the truth, Dianera feels enormous shame for what she has done, and so she commits suicide. Heracles then has his son Helus lead him up to Mount Oeta, where he builds a funeral pyre for himself. This is where the play ends. But known from other sources, Heracles then climbs on top of the pyre and begs passers-by to light it up so that he could be put out of his misery. Nobody, though, would assist him until finally a young Philoctetes of Thessaly wandered by and set it ablaze. As a reward, Heracles gave him his unfailing bow and arrows. In some mysterious way, the fire only purged Heracles of his mortal parts, and he was lifted up into the heavens on a cloud to take his place amongst the immortals. 
We do have a few pieces of biographical information for Sophocles during the later part of his life. In 420 BC, he welcomed and set up an altar for the image of Asclepius at his house, after the deity was first introduced to Athens. For this, he was given the posthumous epithet Dexion, meaning receiver, by the Athenians. He was also elected in 413 BC as one of the proboloi, or commissioners, who responded to the catastrophic destruction of the Athenian fleet in Sicily during the Peloponnesian War. Sophocles' play, Philoctetes, took first prize at the Dionysia in 409 BC. It takes place during the Trojan War, after the events in the Iliad, but before the sack of the city. Philoctetes was a master archer, thanks in large part to having the bow and arrows of Heracles, the reason of which we just mentioned, and so he naturally wished to sail with the Greek fleet to participate in the Trojan War. Along the way, though, he was bitten on the foot by a snake, causing him constant agony and emitting a horrible smell. For this reason, the Greek fleet decided to leave him behind on the island of Lemnos on their way to Troy. Ten years later, after learning from a Trojan seer that they could not win the war without Philoctetes and his bow, the Greeks sent Odysseus and Neoptolemus, the teenage son of Achilles, to Lemnos in order to retrieve him. Sophocles' play begins with their arrival on the island. However, thanks to their earlier abandonment of him, Philoctetes refuses to rejoin the army. The play is predominantly dialogue, with Odysseus and Neoptolemus telling Philoctetes stories and performing actions in order to gain his trust. When that doesn't work, though, a series of arguments ensue. Eventually, Heracles, now a deity, appears above them and persuades Philoctetes that if he goes to Troy, he will be cured and the Greeks will win. The play ends here with this deus ex machina. But the three heroes did sail back to Troy, where Philoctetes' foot was healed and he won glory by killing many Trojans, including Paris, who he shot with his poisoned arrows. Sophocles' play Electra shows stylistic similarities to Philoctetes and Oedipus at Colonus, more on that shortly, which suggests that it was probably written in the latter part of his career as well. Electra corresponds roughly to the plot of Aeschylus' libation bearers, detailing how Electra and Orestes avenged the murder of their father, Agamemnon, by Clytemnestron Aegisthus. And so we won't go into detail here, but listen to episode 50 to learn more about the tragic end to the house of Atreus. Sophocles died at the age of 90 in the winter of 406-405 BC, two years before the end of the Peloponnesian War. And so, during his lifetime, he witnessed both the Greek triumph against Persia and the bloodletting that was the Peloponnesian War. He was described by his contemporaries as a man of outstanding grace and beauty. At the same time, he was said to have enjoyed the company of courtesans, even at an advanced age. Several ancient sources also mention his fondness for young boys. In fact, Athenaeus reports that Sophocles loved boys, like Euripides loved women, and the poet Ion of Chios relates an anecdote involving Sophocles seducing a serving boy at a symposium. The Athenians so admired his poetry that they called him Melissa, literally meaning bee, an insect held by the Greeks in high esteem. We have no substantiated information regarding the cause of his death, but as with many famous men in antiquity, his death inspired a number of apocryphal stories. He is said either to have choked on a grape, or that he died either of exhaustion after reading a large portion of his Antigone or of excessive emotion upon learning of his victory in a drama contest. A few months later, a comic poet in a play titled The Muses wrote his eulogy, quote, Blessed is Sophocles, who had a long life, was a man both happy and talented, and the writer of many good tragedies, 
and he ended his life well without suffering any misfortune. End quote. According to Plutarch and Cicero, however, Sophocles' own son, Iophone, tried to have him declared incompetent and incapable of managing his own affairs near the end of his life, so that he might gain the guardianship of his father's fortune. He is said to have refuted his charge by reading the chorus from his play, titled Oedipus at Colonus, which he was currently writing. This proved to the court that he was still in possession of all of his mental faculties, and so he was acquitted. Even though he managed to finish it before his death, Oedipus Epicolono, or Oedipus at Colonus, his final play in the middle of his three Theban plays, would be staged posthumously in 401 BC by his grandson, also named Sophocles. In the years between the play's composition and its first performance, Athens underwent many changes. They were defeated by the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War, and the city was placed under the rule of the Thirty Tyrants. The citizens who opposed their rule were exiled or executed. This certainly affected the way that early audiences reacted to the play, just as the invasion of Athens and its diminished power surely affected Sophocles as he wrote it. The play contrasts the city of Athens and Thebes quite sharply. In fact, if you haven't noticed already, Thebes was often portrayed in drama as a city where proper boundaries and identities, at least according to Athenian standards, were not maintained, which allowed the playwrights to explore themes like incest, murder, and hubris in a safe setting. Oedipus at Colonus describes the end of Oedipus' tragic life. Following the events of Oedipus Tyrannos, the blind tragic hero wanders for many years after being exiled from Thebes by his sons. In the background, and mentioned a few times during the play, is the feud between his two sons, Polynices and Eteocles, for the throne of Thebes. Only his two daughters, Antigone and Ismene, remain by his side throughout his exile. The three of them eventually arrive at Colonus a village near Athens in Attica, and also Sophocles' own birthplace. There, the chorus of old men wish to expel him from their city, fearing that his presence will bring a curse upon them. There is considerable less action in this play than in Oedipus Tyrannos, and more philosophical discussion, in which Oedipus discusses his fate in connection to the oracle. Although he has committed patricide and incest, two crimes which render him as a sort of monster and outcast among men, Oedipus claims that he is not fully guilty because his crimes were committed in ignorance. At the same time, he knows that he does take on some guilt and his physical suffering, including his self-inflicted blindness and lonely wandering, are his punishment. Much of this play looks at what it means to be guilty and whether knowledge or lack thereof increases or decreases one's guilt. Eventually, news arrives that Creon is on his way to Colonus in order to persuade Oedipus to return to Thebes, because an oracle has been given that the outcome of the conflict with his two sons depends on where their father is buried. Hearing this, Oedipus curses both of his sons for not treating him well, and contrasts them to his two devoted daughters. Then, Theseus, king of Athens, arrives. He sympathizes with Oedipus and offers him unconditional aid which causes Oedipus to praise Theseus and offer him the gift of his burial site, which according to the oracle, will ensure victory to him, should he desire conflict with Thebes. Theseus protests though, saying that the two cities are friendly, but Oedipus responds with what is perhaps the most famous speech in the entire play. He says, quote, O Theseus, dear friend, only the gods can never age. The gods can never die. All else in the world, almighty time obliterates crushes all to nothing, end quote. Basically, he is saying that although the two cities might be friendly now, that could easily change. 
Theseus does accept his offer, and in return, he makes Oedipus a citizen of Athens and leaves the chorus to guard him as he departs to make a sacrifice at a temple of Poseidon. The chorus then sings about the glory and beauty of Athens. When they are finished, Creon finally arrives. He feigns pity for Oedipus and his children and tells him that he should return to Thebes. Oedipus refuses, so Creon instructs his guards to forcibly seize him. The chorus calls for Theseus, who has just arrived after sacrificing to Poseidon. Theseus condemns Creon's actions as unlawful by saying, quote, You have come to a city that practices justice, that sanctions nothing without law. End quote. Creon replies with, quote, I knew your city would harbor a father killer. Worse, a creature so corrupt, exposed as the lover, the unholy husband of his own mother. End quote. An infuriated Oedipus responds to this by declaring once more that he is not morally responsible for what he did. A fight then breaks out as Theseus tries to protect Oedipus from Creon. Theseus, though, manages to overpower Creon and forces him and his men back to Thebes. Then, Polynices arrives, after he had been banished from Thebes by his brother, Ateocles. He tells his father that he had been driven out of Thebes unjustly and is preparing to attack his brother and the city. At this point, Oedipus foretells that his two sons will kill each other in the coming battle. He proclaims that they both deserve this fate for casting him out of Thebes. Antigone tries to stop her brother, but he refuses to be dissuaded and heads back to Thebes and to his fate. Following this, there is a fierce thunderstorm and everyone exits the stage. A messenger then enters and tells the chorus that Oedipus has died. Oedipus departs from the world in a strange fashion by disappearing into the earth of Colonus, where he becomes a mysterious source of protection for the land, where he found his last refuge. Despite being blinded and exiled, and facing violence from Creon and his sons, in the end, Oedipus is accepted and absolved by Zeus. The play concludes with Antigone and Esmeni making their way back to Thebes, where they hope to stop the seven against Thebes from marching. While Sophocles' two plays about Oedipus often bring up the theme of a person's moral responsibility for their own destiny, and whether it is possible to rebel against that same destiny, Oedipus at Colonus shows Oedipus's philosophical resolution of this very problem. In Oedipus Tyrannos, like his father, he believed that he could escape his fate. In Oedipus at Colonus, he declares that even though fate is something that we must suffer, as it's beyond our choice, we must also find a way to work with it. The key line in the play is when Oedipus declares, Let us not fight destiny, and Antigone adds, For you will never see in all the world a man whom the gods have let escape his destiny. Sophocles has not only provided us with several masterpieces of literature, but through his innovations he also helped to establish the standard formula for Greek tragedy, which along with Greek comedy, would define the foundations of all Western theater for millennia. The work of Sophocles has also escaped the boundaries of theater and provoked discussion and reaction in other fields, notably psychology and the work of Sigmund Freud, which is perhaps testimony to the depth and difficulties of interpretation in the plays of this great Greek playwright. During the lifetime of Sophocles, though, there was also one other famous Athenian tragedian, his younger contemporary Euripides, who will be the subject of the next two episodes. So join me next time on the history of ancient Greece, Episode 52, Early Euripides.